this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. Welcome to episode 53 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. On this episode, we're going to hear from Paul Trammell, the author of Becoming a Sailor. We'll hear chapter one of his book, How He Overcame Alcoholism and Bought His First Big Cruising Boat. We're also going to hear from Sailing Kittawakes, Elena. And Elena's going to talk about the uh, YouTube's sailing vlog phenomenon uh, which she wrote this up for the boat galley blog and she agreed to read it for the slow boat sailing podcast this podcast and i think most of the other sailboat podcasts have been very journalistic in their focus in the sense that they interview people and get their take on things that's what journalists do. And when I started up the blog, I mostly started up because somebody said it would help the searchability of the podcast or the YouTube channel or my books. But I, I've been surprised ever since that I've taken a more journalistic focus with slowboatsailing.wordpress.com, which you can also access at slowboatsailing.com, uh, that actually some point this fall, the number of views for that outpaced the podcast and i never expected that i always thought blogging was a, a really old platform and it, it just uh it was impossible to make any traction with a, a blog and i guess i've taken the the opinion that i don't really want to blog my travels because i i do that here on the the podcast or through the videos or i write about it in, in my books and so i i didn't see much point in that which meant that I kind of was moving more towards a news focus. And I think that's, especially when I intensified the news focus after the hurricanes Irma and Maria, I think the the blog has taken off, uh, that it, it does get some traction. One of the things that we've been covering of late is the Golden Globe race, which I think, even though I'm not really into racing, you, it's hard to call the Golden Globe race a race too much. Uh, it's more like an around-the-world sailing challenge, and it definitely is in slow old boats, uh, which is what we like to feature here in slow boat sailing. And, you know, it's a dramatic race. If you think of the first Golden Globe race in 1968-69, which we covered somewhat when we talked to the Crowhurst director, Simon Rumley, that, and we also did talk to Don McIntyre in a previous episode of the Slow Boat Sailing podcast, the, the 1968 Golden Globe race only had one finisher, right? Uh, so one finisher out of nine. And I think the, the current Golden Globe race is going to do better it's going to have more finishers than one it started out with 18 people departing first golden globe race started out with nine people departing and so far 10 have dropped out of the 19 the 2018 golden globe race and we're not really halfway done i think today as i'm recording this maybe the third person has hit the halfway point at the film drop in hobart australia where they kind of interview the skippers but the skippers can't get assistance or anything like that and so the 
think it's a it's an amazing dramatic race. Uh, one of the things that happened in the last month, I may have touched on that a little bit. In the last episode, there were two boats dismasted in September and requiring rescue. A third boat was uh, dismasted this October. So if you look back to August, there was another boat that was dismasted and sailed into port under jury rig. The last three were not able to sail into port under jury rig and they got rescued all of the, it's debatable whether gregor mcguckin could have sailed into port under jury rig but he chose the rescue because his fellow competitor abolish tommy of india had a severe back injury fell from the top of the, his mast if you believe the story he was washed overboard fell from the top of his mast onto the boom when the boat righted itself and after that he was he had a, a limited window where he could move and then he then he eventually would need back surgery and needed to be rescued by, by a stretcher so mcguckin dropped out uh this month loic lepage a french sailor who was actually in the chichester class for having stopped in cape town for some repairs and to get water Loic was in moderate seas of three meters and 25 knot winds, which is pretty good for the Southern Ocean. And it's believed that his forestay broke. So you can read about all this on the Slowboat Sailing uh, WordPress site. So slowboatsailing.wordpress.com or go to slowboatsailing.com and hit the blog section. I'll probably I'll probably move the, the actual website, the slowboatsailing.com website, probably move it straight to the WordPress blog pretty soon. Uh, but I have I've been just procrastinating on that uh, for technical reasons. I think it'll be better that way. So we have three videos up about the Golden Globe race. Might do another one this upcoming month. Who knows? Maybe several. And we also have uh, coverage of Hurricane Michael, which happened more recently. So we talked about Hurricane Florence. There's been a lot of devastating hurricanes around the world. Uh, I've been covering the hurricanes here in North America. So Florence hit the North Carolina, South Carolina. It was very well forecast. People were watching that for a long time. Michael kind of came out of nowhere, and that's what happens with hurricanes. They come out of nowhere, especially during the the high parts of hurricane season, September. October is still the high part of hurricane season. November is still hurricane season in the North Atlantic. You know, in September, August, October, it's not unusual to see hurricanes form in the Caribbean or Gulf of Mexico that had not formed previously. And that was what happened with Hurricane Michael, that it became a tropical storm around the Yucatan, and then it blew up to very strong Category 4 and was accelerating in its intensity as it went to shore. So Florence was kind of a slow hurricane. Hurricane Hurricane Michael was a fast hurricane in terms of how fast it went. And so because Hurricane Florence was going slow, it dumped a lot of water, did a lot of flooding damage. Because Hurricane Michael was going so fast and intensifying so quickly and unusually. It intensified at an unusual rate. A lot of people could attribute that to global warming, that uh, global warming, the warming of the waters will cause hurricanes to intensify, not increase in frequency, but intensify more with warmer water. And certainly, Michael was a very intense hurricane, and it totally devastated Mexico Beach, which is on the panhandle of Florida. It was the, the fastest hurricane, highest uh, category hurricane uh, ever to hit the panhandle of Florida. So totally devastated Mexico Beach, and it uh, did a great deal of damage to Panama City, someplace I visited and detailed that in my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas. 
and uh, it totally destroyed one of the, the marinas that I visited on my trip up to the Bahamas, the Panama City Municipal Marina, which I thought was a tremendous, great facility, but almost every boat was destroyed there. St. Andrews uh, Marina, I don't have any pictures of that on the YouTube channel. I did uh, one of the boaters who was documenting it uh, in the uh, Panama City Municipal Marina uh, graciously gave us permission to use their photos, and you can see that on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. I, I haven't seen a mar another marina uh, that looked worse than what happened in Panama City Municipal Marina. For instance, I think about half the boats, maybe 70% of the boats were destroyed in the St. Andrews Marina, which is also in the Panama City area, but it was almost complete devastation in the Panama City Municipal Marina. and. Of course, homes, loss of life uh, just was terrible for Hurricane Michael, whose top sustained wind speed was 155 miles per hour. I don't think anybody's impervious to one of those direct hits, uh, regardless of how you prepare your boat, uh, that, you know, you have a direct hit from a Category 3, 4, or 5, uh, that die wall hits your boat, whether it's on land, on a in a marina, or it's anchored, it's not going to do very well. Nevertheless, one of the rationales for my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, is that if you live in the southeast of the United States, you are in the hurricane zone, and wherever you store your boat, it's going to run the risk of being destroyed in its slip before you go on that big cruise. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go on the big cruise was I knew New Orleans is not safe. It was clear that almost all the boats were destroyed there right before I moved to New or or the to the Louisiana and Lafayette. The marinas were empty when we bought our first boat. Now they're full. So I think you, there's you're living on borrowed time and and you're living on borrowed time that you don't live forever. So it makes sense to cast off the dock lines and you can haul out your boat uh, somewhere downwind. And that's what I've been doing. I've been sailing around the world part-time and hauling out my boat. The boat's currently in Tonga. And we visited about four haul-out facilities, dry storage facilities, uh, since, since we cast off the dock lines in 2016. My point is, in the words of Captain Ron, you might as well go out there and your boat could be destroyed out there in a dry storage facility because a cyclone hit, but it could be just as easily destroyed in its slip in your home port in the southeastern United States. You're not going to live forever, neither is your boat. So make the most of the days that you have. All right, let's have a word from our title sponsor of this episode, Mantis Marine. The Mini Scuba, that's an awesome setup. It's really set up well for boaters. You have a nice lightweight package. The whole thing's less than 15 pounds, but it still gives you a good, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so underwater. So if you need to do any of your maintenance items on your boat, you just want to do like some spear fishing or some lobster fishing. So at 30 feet, you can get about 15, 20 minutes. But if you're only at like, say, 10 feet, so maybe you're just working on the prop or the hull, you can probably get close to 30 minutes. It's a nice setup. It comes with, you have the tank, you have the regulators, it has a, um, a primary and a, and a secondary. It comes with a simple harness. It's a small two-liter tank, so you don't have a lot of weight to, to try to offload. And we throw everything into a nice backpack, so everything fits in the backpack, so it's easy and portable. You can get all your Mantis gear from mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. We've interviewed a lot of awesome YouTube sailing vloggers working 
continue to do that next month. I'm planning on having one of my favorite YouTube vloggers of all time, Plucky from Sailing Into Freedom and his partner Margarita on the Slow Boat Sailing podcast, unless we have some other big news. But let's hear from the creator of this YouTube channel, Sailing Kiddo Week, Elena, about her take on what it takes to be a successful YouTube sailing vlog, is it worth the effort? So I, I actually did a study about how much people make on uh, YouTube sailing vlogs. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and it's an academic study. I think the, the average per video revenues for somebody that has a Patreon site, or the typical, the median, is about $74, if I remember it correctly from the paper. Over a year ago, there were over 450 sailing channels channels. Most of those were vlogs and most of those were still active, that they were still making videos within the last, say, three months. But um, every indication is that there's a lot more than when I did that study back in January 2017. And maybe just to put in context the numbers that Sailing Kittawick is giving you, I would say that they're probably the 50th to the 100th biggest channel in terms of subscribers. We actually have more views on our channel. They have more subscribers than we do, uh, but in terms of views, maybe they're the, in the 100th to 200th rank in terms of views. I would also say that Kittawick is probably more successful with their crowdfunding than the typical channel of their size. I guess I'd say they're in the top 20% of active vloggers. So that means there's 80% that are doing a lot worse than Sailing Kittawick is in terms of uh, views. So Sailing Kittawick has a 26-foot catamaran that they're sailing in the Met. They recently did a video that said they're going to get, I think, a 36-foot boat because the catamaran's just a little small, 26-foot, and it's kind of hard for Ryan, who is 6-foot-3, to, to not bump his head on their catamaran, Kittawick. Okay, here's Elena. <laughs> The realities of having a YouTube channel. In the past five years, there has been a huge boom of YouTube sailing channels. More and more people have watched successful vlogs such as Sailing La Vagabond and SV Delos from their couch, got inspired to go cruising and started documenting their journey in the same way. It's great because it means more and more people, many of whom are young, are getting out there on the water. When you look at how much money these big channels are making, over $10,000 per episode alone through a platform called Patreon, it's easy to assume that running a YouTube channel is an easy way to make a living. Except it's really not. In this article, I'll share the reality of having a YouTube channel a year after launching our own. I want to be honest and explain how it really works. I'll try to stick with facts and keep this write-up as objective as possible. While reading it, Please remember that I absolutely love having a YouTube channel and I do want to keep making videos. Editing is hard. When you watch a sleek 12-minute La Vagabond episode, you might think it's easy to group together a few shots on a timeline, pop some music on top and upload it on YouTube. However, if you want your videos to be of decent quality, you need to learn how to use a good editing software such as Final Cut Pro or Lightworks. This takes a lot of time and effort alone. Once you've mastered the software, editing can still be challenging. You may not have enough shots, some of the clips might be terrible, or you may have some sound issues. 
I can't tell you how many times we got down to editing a video and realised that the wind makes it impossible to hear what we say in a clip or we didn't shoot enough on a particular sale because one of us was unwell. Editing is challenging. Producing videos takes a huge amount of time. A 15-minute video can take up to 40 hours of editing and 20 hours of filming. That's our usual numbers, at least. You may think this won't apply to you. Unless you're a professional filmmaker, think again. You accumulate a crazy amount of hours of footage, which you've got to watch, you won't use most of it. Then you spend endless hours editing the clips together and matching the sound levels. And finally, you've got to find good music that fits well with your narrative. Once your draft is complete, you may have to make changes to it. We typically have two or three rounds of amends for each video we create. Then of course, there is the time spent creating an attractive thumbnail, writing the copy for the YouTube title and description, writing a unique Patreon message and post, promoting your video on all your social media platforms, keeping your social media platforms up to date, learning more about videography, updating your website, studying how the YouTube algorithm works, and so on. It really is a full-time job, if you're serious about it. We typically dedicate around 40 hours to our videos and related activities per week, and we publish two episodes per month. Most sailing channels release four videos per month. We can't. We still need to make a living because, guess what? Making money out of a vlog isn't easy. I'm not going to hide it. Making money on YouTube is pretty damn hard. Here are the main options you have. YouTube ads. You can make money by allowing YouTube to display ads before, during and after your videos. To get decent money from ads, you need hundreds of thousands of views per month. And to apply as a YouTube partner, you need a minimum of 1,000 followers. Our small channel, currently 9,000 subscribers, typically generates around 40,000 to 50,000 views per month. This makes us about $50 to $80 per month. We started making $30 per episode after about four months of starting the channel and then the amount grew together with the views. Brand collaborations. If you're lucky, you can get a few freebies through your channel. For example, we were given a free anchor and a free cruising shoot last year. All we need to do is use them, which we of course do naturally as we need to sail an anchor. The good thing about freebies is that you can get in touch with your favorite brands and ask them for a specific product directly, so you end up promoting something you truly love. As you grow your audience, all sorts of brands will get in touch, asking you to promote their products in exchange for a couple of samples and, sometimes, some money. We have been approached by a number of non-sailing related companies offering free sunglasses and other merchandise. We politely declined because we didn't feel we could fulfill their requirement, a sponsored review, without sounding phony and irritating to our loyal followers. However, some of the bigger channels do accept some of these deals, sponsoring DNA testing services, selfie sticks, sun ovens, etc. Whether you can accept or not, it ultimately depends on the feel you want your channel to have. Other deals you may be offered are referral schemes. You recommend a product on your channel and earn a small referral fee when your viewers buy it. We never got involved in something like this because we don't feel we have enough influence on people to make them buy a product. To make decent money out of brand collaborations, you need to strike quite a few deals per month. And of course, brands won't offer you money unless you have a good amount of subscribers and views. 30,000 plus subscribers usually. So far, we only ever accepted freebies, no money. Patreon. Thankfully, there is Patreon. Patreon is an amazing platform on which people donate a fixed amount of money to a creator on a monthly basis to support their work. These amazing people recognize that making videos is actually pretty hard and they want to help you keep up with the costs of running a YouTube channel. 
Awesome. This is a great way to make money because most of it does reach you and it's real hard cash. Making money through Patreon is a real possibility for anyone. There are a few things you need to bear in mind about this platform. Patreon keeps some of the money, around 5%, and there is also a processing fee for each transaction, around 4%. So on average, you get 90% of the money pledged. The amount of money per video displayed on your Patreon page will only apply to your first published video per month. What does it mean? When people donate, they put a cap on their donation so they don't spend more than they can per month. A proportion of people will cap their contribution to one video per month, some to two, a few to three, and a couple of people to four. This means that if your Patreon page says $200 per video and you publish four videos per month, your earning won't be $800, but rather around $500. Patreon money isn't a very reliable source of income. People increase or decrease their pledges and often interrupt their donations. Unless you're making much more than you need per month, you can't rely on the amount you see on screen at the beginning of the month. Even the amount made by the big channels fluctuates a lot, often by one or two thousand dollars. It's not easy to convince people to donate. Most people think you're a scam, wanting people to pay you to live your dreams. They don't realize how hard it is to produce good video content or how much effort and money you put into it. We've had Patreon for a year now and we're making around $330 per month on it. We're forever grateful to our patrons. They are what keeps us going when equipment fails and views drop. Patreon is truly great. It allows you to build a special relationship with some of your followers and to make some real money. I personally think this is the best platform for making money on YouTube. Don't expect to open a Patreon page and be flooded by donations though. It takes time. Our first few months on Patreon, we made $15 to $20 per month and it took us six months from releasing our first ever video to get to $100 per month. Casual donations. You can also give people the chance to make a one-off donation to you via PayPal. They may want to show their appreciation for your free content but cannot commit to a regular donation. This is usually called buy us a beer on YouTube. This is a great way to get a tip because it's a lovely surprise to receive every now and then. We usually get one or two donations per month, around $10 minus 4% PayPal fees, and it definitely makes our day. Merchandise. Most sailing channels offer branded merchandise, such as t-shirts, cups, stickers, and more. They use a print-on-demand platform, which takes care of creating the products and shipping them to their buyers. The platform keeps most of the profits from the transactions, and you get a cut. We decided not to go down this route yet, as we don't think we'd sell much and we'd rather people gave us $1 per episode supporting the content we produce rather than having them spend a considerable amount of money on some low-quality merchandise for which we get a small margin. Who knows, that might change in the future. We now make around $400 per month all in all through our videos thanks to the growth of our channel over the past year. Of course, we didn't make any money for the first few months and for a long time we made around $100 or $200 per month. Our donations have just gone up. Thank you, amazing patrons. We're very lucky we do make some money. Many vloggers don't make anything. Oh, and we don't use the money to eat. It pays back for some of our video production expenses because you need to invest in gear and data. Whether you want to produce high quality videos or more charming homemade vlogs, you need a couple of cameras, a microphone and use the internet. There is no escape. You need to invest some money into your YouTube channel. We started off really cheap. We spent $200 on a used old mirrorless camera, dug out an old GoPro we already had, 
we bought a crap old DJI's drone, $200, and got a microphone for $70. Then our camera charger broke and we had to buy a new one, $70. Then our camera battery was lasting too little and we bought two unbranded ones, $35 each. Then we decided we needed a decent drone to improve our videos, $1,900. Then our main camera broke, so we bought a new one, $800. Shall I go on? On top of the equipment, we spend around $40 per month on mobile data to upload our videos onto YouTube. A year on, we haven't yet recovered the costs of running our YouTube channel, mostly due to the huge expense of the drone. We make money through freelance work each week to cover our cruising and living costs. The truth is, we don't do it for the money. We do it because we love it and hope one day our efforts will pay off. There is no guarantee this will happen, but we're still having fun. My advice to you is, don't start a YouTube channel to make money. Do it because you love filming, because you want to show your travels to your family, because you want to watch the videos when you're older, or because you want to learn how to film and edit. Basically, do it for a good personal reason. There is no guarantee a vlog will earn you a living or even make you any money. With new sailing channels starting every month, it's getting harder and harder to get viewers interested in yet another sailing story. So it's important you keep motivated for personal reasons. You'll have amazing followers and supporters. Sailors and aspiring sailors are awesome people. I'm not sure why they're so special. Maybe the link to the sea and nature connects them all in a unique way. Whatever the reason, they are truly supportive of other cruisers. This will reflect in your channel's audience. 99.9% of the comments and emails you receive will be amazingly nice, kind and warm. Your fondest followers will take the time to say thank you or compliment you on a video or help you solve a problem or simply encourage you. We have a truly wonderful band of followers and supporters. Reading their comments and messages day in and day out is what makes making these videos truly worth it. The trolls will find you. I wasn't quite prepared for the trolls. I thought they were mean mythological creatures hanging out around huge channels. I was wrong. Trolls are everywhere and they will find you. Trolls are people who specialize in upsetting creators on YouTube. They will offend you, criticize you, and spam your channel with off-topic comments. These people hate you and will do everything they can to make you feel crap about yourself. When reading their comments, try to remember they don't know you and they are just throwing their own anger and resentment at a random person, so try to ignore them. Imagine they're a stranger shouting obscenities at you on the street. It's nothing personal. Dealing with their comments can be rather hard. I know I still struggle, but you'll grow a thicker skin for it. Take a deep breath and block them or hide all their comments. Then try to forget what they said. Easier said than done, but I'm working on it. You'll make amazing friends. The sailing world is rather small. It's weird, but once your channel gets going, people will start to recognize you. It's usually other cruisers on other boats or on shore. They'll pop round and say something like, Hey, are you a sailing kitty wake from YouTube? And they'll quickly become new great friends. This, for me, is one of the best advantages of having a channel. Not because we like to be spotted, it can actually be kind of awkward, but because we get to meet new people. Ryan and I make so many more friends thanks to our channel. As we live at Anchor and work on our laptops inside the boat a lot, sometimes it's hard to meet other cruisers. We usually don't have much time to go around to other boats to introduce ourselves between the video creation, the freelance work, the boat maintenance, the sailing, the blog, etc. So it's always a pleasant surprise when someone dinghies over and asks if it's really us. We can quickly invite them on board or make plans to meet them later. 
When we think back, most of the friends we made because we got recognized, we would have never met had we not had a YouTube channel. We met most of these people by pure luck. We were in the same supermarket as they were on shore, or they were rowing to shore while we were swimming. We're so grateful we got to meet them. You'll also make friends when people reach out to say they live in an area you're about to cruise. That's another amazing way to make new friends. You get to meet locals, make friends with them, and they will be awesome enough to show you their hometown. Oh, clickbait. Lastly, the most painful of all aspects of having a YouTube channel. I couldn't leave it out. No matter how good your filming and editing get over time, people click on videos based on the title and thumbnail. So unless those really make people want to click, your videos won't get a lot of views. What generates tons of views? Sex, nudity, disasters, negativity, money, celebrities. So not the actual sailing. More than once, we released a video which we thought was our best one yet only to see it get a fraction of the views we usually get because there was no drama in it. This can be very discouraging. There's no denying it. You just have to take it as a learning process. Each time you release your best video yet and you see it flop, try to learn from it and improve. YouTube audience is unpredictable and can sometimes astound you. So there you have it. Having a YouTube sailing channel isn't stress-free and it's not an easy way to make money. However, it's extremely rewarding. It pushes you to learn new things it allows you to see the best side of humanity and it helps you make new treasured friends. So if you're prepared for what's to come, have a go at it. I personally think it's a great experience. I noticed you guys have a lot of cool products. One was the underwater light. So we have a waterproof light. You can recharge it in its case. It has just a simple USB cable. It's good for uh, 30 feet underwater. So it's really nice if you need to go under the, under the boat and check your hull, um, do any inspections or check the prop. It's really convenient. Or even go down, look at the anchor. A lot of times you don't have good light. Um, we've been in situations at nighttime when you've had to dive under the boat because the prop has gotten fouled up. A thousand lumens, so it has really bright light settings on it too. So it really lights up the um, lights up the area well. That was Deneen Taylor of Mantis Marine, our title sponsor for this podcast. You can get all their innovative marine gear, including their anchors, at Mantis Marine or MantisAnchors.com or other fine retailers. So I'm also pleased to have Paul Trammell, who owns a sailboat and recently wrote the book Becoming a Sailor. He's also working on a book, Journey to the Ragged Islands. I believe the current book, Becoming a Sailor and the future book are available on Amazon and Kobo, so check them out. Here's the first chapter of Becoming a Sailor by Paul Trammell. Hello, my name is Paul Trammell. About three years ago, I quit drinking, started sailing as a substitute for that. I used some of the money that I'd saved in one year of sobriety to buy a sailing class with the American Sailing Association. And I started after that, I started uh, getting all the experience I could and reading all the books that I could about sailing. I developed the dream of becoming a single-handed sailor. That dream eventually ended with me uh, buying a sailboat and sailing at a thousand miles from St. Petersburg back home to St. Augustine. And I wrote a book about that, and it's called Becoming a Sailor, a Single-Hand Sailing Adventure. It's about chasing the dream, and I'm going to read from the book now. I'm going to start at the beginning, and after a while, I'm going to skip ahead. So this is the beginning of Becoming a Sailor, a single-hand sailing adventure, which is available at Amazon.com as well as Kobo.com. I can see civilization, and perhaps it can see me. 
but it can't reach me and I can't reach it. All the noise and activity of the city lie beyond the horizon. Out here, tranquility reigns. The only sounds are the faint rumble of the wind in my sails, the creaking of the rig, and the gentle lapping of the water as it slides across the hull of my little ship. Clean air fills my chest and smells of nothing. The city skyline fades and then disappears below the horizon. The sea and the sky are all that surround me, and the movement of the water and the stillness of the clouds captivate my mind. There is nothing to do but steer. I focus on a stationary cloud in front of the bow while gently moving the tiller, just enough to counteract the motion of the waves over which we ride, cloud steering all day long. There are no distractions, no artificial noises, sounds, or smells. This is the home of nature, and I feel welcomed here. The ocean is an enormous wilderness on which I am confined to the surface. It is all-powerful. It is indifferent to my presence. Man lives in awe of the ocean, rarely venturing beyond its edge or penetrating its depth. Most of it is a vast, unexplored mystery. Its waters contain countless creatures of all shapes and sizes, some beautiful beyond explanation, others hideous, most benign, while others strike an instinctive fear in our hearts. Hiss and a splash reveal dolphins riding in my wake, rolling, twisting, breathing the same air I might have exhaled moments ago. While I breathe in the air they exhale, I smile at the thought of the intelligent creatures taking notice of my little sailboat. I think I make eye contact with one. It is smiling, too. As quickly as they come, the dolphin disappear, and the ocean is again silent. The invisible wind continues to push and pull us forward towards a destination that is days away. I look aft and take note of, an ang of the angle at which the waves approach. I steer by maintaining this angle. This way I can look somewhere besides forward for a while, taking in a different view. I watch the bubbles rise in our wake. I see a bird gliding on the same wind that propels Sobrius. The bird slows, folds its wings in, and dives straight down into the ocean, disappearing beneath its surface. Moments later, it emerges, head pointing skyward, mouth open, swallowing an unlucky fish. The bird fades into the distance, this time disappearing behind the waves, but it reappears soon after, back in the sky, gliding. There is nothing to do but steer. Peace has settled over me, and I don't want it to end. There is no greater peace than that which comes from a fine day of sailing on the ocean beyond the reach of all the responsibilities of land, where options are so limited that one has nothing to do but sail. Steer the boat, trim the sails, one need not make too many decisions. I can't simply step off the boat and go do something productive. I have to sail. There is no other option, so my mind settles into an extraordinary state of relaxation, peace, solitude, and harmony. But nothing is permanent. Contrast always looms, yet without contrast, all is gray, neither good nor bad. Peace, solitude, and harmony can quickly give way to chaos out on the ocean, and sailing brings tranquility, terror, and everything in between. Contrast allows us to deeply appreciate what is good. Contrast strengthens us like the wind strengthens a tree. Nature is the master of contrast, and exposure to nature in its myriad faces, moods, and extremes empowers us balances us and cleanses our soul out on the ocean and a small sailboat exposure to nature is absolute nature is as close to god as we can get with our physical bodies to live with nature is to live with god to live without nature is to live without god and is the definition of sin without we must commune with nature to be whole we must commune with nature to purify our souls i must have done more good than bad in my life because the ocean has allowed me safe and pleasant passage so far. The boat has stayed on the surface, and the wind has carried us to our destinations. I have explored sailing alone, and I have fallen in love with it. Challenges have come my way, and I have managed to get through them. Peace and wonder have come my way, and I have enjoyed them fully. Nature is the greatest gift we have, and I want to experience all it has to offer during my life here on Earth in this time. Nature is forever changing, and man is constantly altering nature. So now is the time to explore, to experience, and to preserve what we can of the natural world. When the time comes, and it will come for all of us, to pass on to the next world, 
What will we remember? What will we most value from the time we spent here? It will not be the time we wasted in frivolous activities. It will not be the time we spent chasing money. It will not be the time we spent servicing our egos. We will remember and cherish our good deeds, our adventures, our time deep in nature, when we were closest to God. We will remember when heaven and earth were one, when nothing else mattered but the here and now. In the end, all we have are our memories. All we leave behind are our deeds, and all we take with us are our experiences. I am happiest when I'm adventure. A nomad submerged in nature, experiencing the real world, wild, untamed, and unspoiled. I seek this out whenever I can get away from my normal life in a house with a truck and a job, and all the amenities that make our lives easy and homogenous, one day blending into the next with a sameness that dulls the senses. The common man mistakes comfort for happiness and falls into a routine promoting the former over the latter. Occasional discomfort brings about resistance to discomfort, new appreciation for the good things in life. It helps us redefine what is good and eliminate unnecessary trappings. In the year 2016, I began to design a new life for myself, one that would focus on adventure and require discipline, endurance to discomfort, resistance to cravings, education, and learning new skills. My goal was to sail on the open ocean by myself, single-handed, cut off from society. I craved adventure at its greatest, and nature spoke to me and reminded me of the ocean and sailboats. I didn't have a boat, but I began training and preparing for what I knew would come. I identified everything that had so far prevented me from becoming a sailor, and I set out to overcome all obstacles in my path. I lacked, not, I lacked knowledge, so I read and I studied all I could about sailing, devouring books and taking notes as if I was back in school. I lacked experience, so I took a one-week sailing class and crewed on offshore passages and in local races. I feared being cold at sea, so I tried to become more cold tolerant by taking cold showers and long walks on the beach in cold and windy weather. I feared drowning, so I took up ocean swimming. I knew I could never be a sailor if I was a drunk, so I stayed sober. I chose a name for my sailboat long before I found her, Sobrius. Latin for sobriety. I wrote this name with a smiley face underneath on a sticky note and stuck it to a map of the world, which is tacked to the wall in front of my desk, where I would see it every day like a talisman that would make my dream more real, while the map was a daily reminder of where I wanted to take the little sailboat that I didn't yet have. Sailing on the ocean, no land in sight, clean air, nature, silence, adventure. These are the things I dreamed about. Not at night, but when sitting quietly at my desk or walking on the beach in the morning. I wanted to sail to faraway places and see parts of the world that I had not yet seen. I wanted to experience the ocean in all its moods. Well, not literally all of them. I wanted to dive beneath the surface to see underwater worlds, the fish, the coral, the depths. I wanted to escape. I wanted a new life. I had ditched my old one. In the past, I had traded nature and adventure for intoxication in a long, slow barter that I was somewhat unaware of. In my new life, I was going to take back adventure. I craved it like a drug, like the drugs from my past. I needed a sailboat, and nothing was going to stop me from getting one. It was just a matter of time. And as so often happens to the determined, eventually I got what I wanted. I became obsessed with looking at and researching sailboats online well before I had any money saved or any real plan to get one. I wanted to be ready when the time came to buy a sailboat. So I took in all the information that I could that might enable me to choose the right boat. I poured over online listings and researched all the boats that looked interesting. I read articles and online forums, looked at statistics, studied the pros and cons of different designs. It was overwhelming at times, but slowly I began forming opinions about what I wanted in a sailboat. I knew that a new life waited for me and, and a sailboat would bring me there. It wasn't long before I picked up the phone and began calling numbers listed on the sailboat advertisements and talking to the sellers. And of course, this eventually led to seeing boats in person. I looked at many sailboats in 2016. The first was an old, old Irwin 44 catch. It wasn't the right boat for me and I felt this before I looked at it, but it was close to home and I needed to get started. 
after spending an inordinate amount of time devouring the pictures and descriptions of boats for sale online, I determined that I needed to go and see one in person in order to make my mission to get a sailboat more real. In order for a dream to become reality, one must get the dream off the ground, and looking at this first boat signified my dream taking off, going from the purely mental stage to the concrete stage of action. Through much study of sailboat design and single-handing, I determined that I wanted a boat steered by a tiller as, as opposed to a wheel, so as to facilitate single-hand sailing. The tiller allows a skipper more mobility while steering, and can be controlled with the legs or knees to free up the hands for trimming the sails. An autopilot for a tiller is simpler and less expensive than one for a wheel, and the tiller is also more easily adaptable to sheet the tiller steering or wind vane steering compared to a wheel. At first I wanted a boat with a full keel, which runs the full length of the hull, as opposed to a fin keel, which is shorter but deeper. The fin keel offers more speed, maneuverability, and windward performance, while the full keel offers more stability and safety. But then I discovered a compromise. The fin keel was skeg hung rudder. The skeg is like a miniature keel which supports and protects the rudder and provides some directional stability while retaining most of the performance of a strictly fin keeled boat. I continued, and the next two boats I looked at were more suited to my intended purpose. A Camper Nicholson 31, then a Southern Cross 31, both full keeled, heavily built, double ended, that is, pointed on the bow and stern like a canoe, ocean crossing sailboats. Both these boats were recommended in John Bigger's book, 20 Small Sailboats to Take You Anywhere, and would have been good choices. Yet I had no idea how to come up with the money to purchase either at the time. But I needed to see them, to sit in their cockpits and put my hand on the tiller. I needed to visualize myself spending weeks at a time in a sailboat and see how this made me feel. I needed to learn all I could about sailboats in order to make an informed and educated decision when the time came to buy one. I knew that the time would come. I became interested in the Sadler line of unsinkable sailboats, that is the 29 and the 34, after reading about them. Unsinkability seemed like a good idea to me. They essentially have two hulls, one smaller than the other and fit inside the larger one. The space between them is filled with foam. I found one for a very reasonable price in Maryland, so I drove all the way there from Florida and back over a weekend to see it. I reasoned that if I was going to be a single-handed ocean-crossing sailor, then a drive to Maryland and back over a weekend should be no problem. The marathon drive further reinforced the reality of my mission to become a sailor. The green Sadler 29, which sat in the dry dock in Chesapeake Bay, was a very stout-looking boat, and I was tempted to make an offer on the spot. But the boat did not have a working engine, so instead I returned home and waited until the owner fixed the engine, after which I hired a marine surveyor to inspect the boat. He stopped his inspection early and only charged me half the agreed upon price. He found some major issues right away, including diesel fuel as well as water all over the inside of the boat, and his instruments picked up water intrusion in the flotation built under the hull. If water had permeated the built-in flotation, I reasoned that the boat was no longer unsinkable and heavier than it should be. I lost interest. Next, I found a Dufour Arpege in St. Petersburg, and I went to see it and two other boats in one trip through South Florida. The first boat I visited in Indian Town was a Voyager 26. It was a full-keeled double-ender that looked like a miniature version of the West Sail 32, a classic ocean-crossing sailboat. But it had been long neglected and also had no standing headroom inside. Further south in Pompano Beach, I looked at a beautiful Cape Dory 28 that looked like it needed no work at all. I was very interested in the boat, and the owner was extremely eager to sell. In fact, he was so eager that I became suspicious of him. I kept on driving all the way to St. Petersburg to see the Dufour Arpege. The Arpege attracted me right away, even though it looked a bit neglected, with no varnish on the teak and the tarp covering its main hatch. I liked its aggressive looks, and I had read nothing but positive reviews about them. At least one had even circumnavigated the globe. I liked it enough that I made an offer and scheduled an inspection, and I returned a few days later for the inspection and the sea trial. The marine surveyor looked all over the boat, finding a couple soft spots on deck, but nothing catastrophic. We took it into Tampa Bay for a sail, which seemed fine to me, and around the corner for a haul out at Salt Creek Marina, where the boat was lifted out of the water so that we could inspect the hull. The keel was a cast iron fin with a bulb at the bottom, way ahead of its time for a boat from 1972. The iron was very pitted, and the keel had oysters and barnacles all over it. The rudder was 
was supported by a long, thin skeg, which I liked. I was warming up to the thin keel and skeg hung rudder idea. The surveyor walked around the boat while tapping on the hull with a rubber hammer and listening for hollow sounds that would indicate delamination of the hull. None was found. However, little flakes of bronze fell to the ground as the surveyor tapped on a blade of the propeller with the back of his pocket knife. Galvanic corrosion, that is preferential corrosion of dissimilar metals when in contact with an electrolyte, seawater, had taken its toll on the propeller and was ruined. There was no sacrificial zinc anode attached. Apparently the diver who had been paid to regularly clean the bottom and inspect the zinc had not been doing his job. But overall the boat looked fine to me and the surveyor seemed like to like it too. After an hour of inspection, the yard lowered the arpege back into Salt Creek, and the four of us climbed on board for the return trip to St. Petersburg Municipal Marina. As we motored out of Salt Creek, we were all startled by the loud beeping of an alarm. The engine was overheating, and the engine temperature alarm was assaulting the otherwise tranquil afternoon. We had to stop the engine right when we really needed it to turn to starboard and motor upwind away from the seawall. Al, the broker, was at the helm. Get the sail up, he shouted as we slowly drifted downwind. The owner of the boat and I went to the main and tried to hoist it, but the hard and inflexible battens in the mainsail were getting caught in the rope network of the lazy jacks, preventing the mainsail from rising. I alternately pulled and lowered the halyard, trying to work the sail around the lazy jacks, but my inexperience won the day, and the sail remained only halfway up and ineffective at providing forward thrust. At least get the jib up, Al yelled as we drifted toward the corrugated steel seawall in certain destruction. The owner of the boat, a young man with large round glasses and a calm demeanor, went to the head sail halyard and raised it while I struggled with the main. We began moving forward instead of sideways. He then released the lazy jacks, freeing the battens of the mainsail, which I was then able to raise. The main immediately caught wind and added to our forward motion. We barely missed the seawall as we slowly began moving parallel to it and then away from it, upwind. Al tacked us into deeper water away from the seawall and then turned us around back to Salt Creek. We returned to the Salt Creek Marina where he sailed us into a slip. The secretary at the marina was kind enough to give the four of us a ride back to St. Petersburg Municipal Marina, where I discussed the findings with the surveyor. The Arpeggio's engine, a clean and modern Yamar YGM-10, was one of its main attractions to me, and since it had problems, I backed out of the deal. I soon found another Arpeggio in Miami and drove there to see it. This one was beautiful and had been meticulously maintained. Its hull was bright blue. All the stainless steel was polished and shining in the sunlight, and it was clean and looked ready to go. The owner had passed away, but had sailed this boat on long ocean voyages to the Azores and the Caribbean. It was loaded with electronics, had roller furling, 28 horsepower Yanmar diesel, and lots of spare parts and tools. This little sailboat was eager for adventure and had an air of wonder to it. I made an offer on the spot. The seller gave a verbal acceptance and I agreed to set up an inspection and wire deposit after I returned to St. Augustine. Since I was in Coconut Grove, I decided to meet my high school sweetheart, Christina, who lived there. We met at a cafe and reminisced. Little did we know that I would be here again on another arpege in January. After returning to St. Augustine, wiring a deposit, and setting up a survey of the arpege, I was informed that the seller had legal problems and could not proceed with the sale. The next boat I looked at was a big, majestic, and classic Alberg 35. I loved it, but it was, by comparison to the arpege, an enormous sailboat, and the entire bow area of the deck was severely delamped. My father cautioned against a boat this big, saying it would be a difficult boat on which to learn to sail and that I would be reluctant to sail it on account of its size and lack of maneuverability due to its full keel. Days before I looked at the Elberg, I watched a man try to turn his full keeled Bristol 44 around in a marina. The boat simply would not turn in such a small space and he actually collided with another boat that was sitting peacefully in its slip. I think my father was right. I didn't follow up on this one. Maybe in the future I'll look at another Elberg. They are beautiful boats with a reputation of seaworthiness. I found another Cape Dory, this one a 30 foot cutter and quickly went to see it. I loved it. I scheduled a survey on a 
and on a return trip during the survey, the inspector took an oil sample from the engine, sent it to a lab for analysis, and it was found by the lab to have major saltwater intrusion. This was enough to make me back out of the deal. In the meantime, the owner of the first arpege had the water pump rebuilt and the engine was running again. I decided to go ahead with this one. The price was right and it was the right boat, just big enough to live on if I needed to and well suited for a single hander. In November of 2016, I went to St. Petersburg with an envelope full of cash and purchased the arpege. It was mine. After the seller and the broker left, I was alone with my sailboat. I stood on the dock gazing lovingly at her. The hull was dark blue, the dark blue of deep clean water with a faded gold stripe at the waterline. The bow and transom gracefully overhung the water, giving her a classic look of sailboats from the 60s and 70s. The neglected teak of the tow rail, handholds, and tiller was a silver gray, like the color of weathered aluminum, and looked like it had not been varnished since the, since the turn of the century. The deck was off-white with two hatches, one facing forward and one facing aft. Long, horizontal windows dropping to a point at the front ran down the sides of the low coach roof and gave the vessel the look of an animal with its eyebrows furrowed. The acrylic of the hatches and windows was bright blue, but crazed for many years of exposure to the sun. The lifelines were not the usual steel cable, but, but instead a thin white line which did not give an impression of safety. A blue tarp, the kind you buy at a hardware store, covered the main hatch and the area between it and the mast, an obvious sign of leaks. Although it looked neglected, and it looked like it was made to venture out into the ocean and make the best of the wind, I sensed that she wanted a new owner and still had some life in her. The Arpege is a 30-foot sloop and was designed for fast offshore cruising. It was the boat that launched the Dufour brand. Revolutionary at its time, but common now, it has an iron fin keel with a bulb at the bottom, shaped like a torpedo, which increases the boat's stability and speed, and a skeg supports and protects the rudder. The cockpit is small and allows water to flow back out into the ocean through two large drains. A small, well-drained cockpit is necessary for ocean sailing, preventing the boat from being overwhelmed by the breaking of a wave over the rear of the vessel and filling the cockpit with seawater. The steering is accomplished with a tiller. The main sheet and the two winches which control the jib sheets are both accessible from the tiller, facilitating single-hand sailing. The head sail, also called a jib, hangs onto the head stay. It's the steel cable that connects the bow to the top of the mast. This is an old-fashioned way of attaching a sail to the head stay with spring-loaded clips called hanks. This is opposed to the more modern and convenient and expensive roller furling, in which the head sail is wrapped around the head stay when not in use. Inside are two quarter berths underneath the cockpit benches. In front of the starboard berth is a navigation table. In front of the port berth is a small two-burner alcohol stove and a tiny sink. Two more berths are in the main salon with storage above and below them, and a removable table attaches to the steel mass compression post. Further forward is a head opposite some shelves and a hanger for clothes, and the bow is a small storage area. There is no refrigeration or air conditioner. It is a simple boat, and I figured it would be a good choice for single-handing, as I intended to do. Immediately after buying her, I spent two months in St. Petersburg, docked at the Municipal Marina in a slip that I took over from the previous owner, living and working on Sobrius. The surveyor provided me with a long list of tasks to be completed before sailing home to St. Augustine, and I added many of my own chores to the list. The marina was right in the center of downtown and surrounded by green space on the bayfront, walking paths, upscale shopping and dining. Luckily, St. Petersburg was a sailing city with many resources for the sailor renovating a boat. There were chandleries, a sail loft, a store specializing in selling sails, and another that sold only hoses, one that sold only fasteners, another that specialized in fiberglass and epoxy, and even a solar panel dealer. I was never in need of a part or a product that was not available. The first thing I did was replace the exhaust hose, which was followed by the cockpit drain hoses and the sink drain hose. Hoses seemed like something easy to replace, and I wanted to start with something at which I knew I would succeed. Next, I replaced all the interior and exterior lights with LED lights. This was in order to save electricity while sailing and to reduce my need to run the engine to charge the batteries, which I also replaced. My reliance on the engine was drastically further reduced by the installation of two 55-watt solar panels. Much of the wire 
wiring inside the boat I replaced and I added some outlets for USB and car lighter type DC electrical chargers which I used to charge my iPhone, Kendall, two handheld VHF radios, my video camera, a flashlight, and one powers a small fan. In order to prevent myself from falling overboard and watching the sailboat sail off without me, I installed three pad eyes in the cockpit to which I could clip my tethers from my safety harness and thus be firmly attached to the boat. One pad eye I mounted to the floor to be used while in the cockpit and the other two I mounted to the cockpit bulkhead. And from these, I can lead flat nylon straps to two cleats that I installed at the bow. These straps are known as jack lines, and to them, I clip a tether from my safety harness when I need to go on deck while sailing. My life jacket is built like a climber's harness and has two short tethers tied to it with carabiners on the ends. It is these carabiners that I clip to the pad eyes and jack lines. I have two so that if I am moving forward and need to cross an obstacle, like a jib sheet, I can clip one past the obstacle before unclipping the other one. When I am working outside the cockpit, I clip one tether to a shroud while the other is clipped to a jack line so that I am clipped to two different things. I really don't want to fall off the boat. The Arpeggio's deck had many leaks, so I spent a lot of time tracking these down and sealing them. I also painted non-skid paint on the deck to give me a better grip while walking outside the cockpit, crucial for keeping firm footing and staying aboard. All the woodwork on deck got sanded, epoxied, and varnished. All deck hardware got rebedded. I put a lot of time and effort into these projects, working all day, every day, and my background as a carpenter was invaluable in the restoration process. I would never have been able to afford to pay someone else to do all the work that I did to my beloved little sailboat. I could barely afford to do it myself. The repairs went on for a full two months of 10-hour days. During this time, I sailed in Tampa Bay to get used to the boat and to learn how to single hand. This was a wonderful part of my life that I will always remember and cherish. Working hard, but strictly for myself and for my dream, to become a single-hand sailor. Each morning, I would wake before the sun, make coffee, and walk along the beautiful bayfront of St. Petersburg, strolling along the sidewalk that fronts the water, looking at the boats, and trying to meditate while watching the sunrise. I figured that I needed to learn to meditate in order to sleep in 20 minute increments while sailing and to just keep my sanity and clarity of mind during long periods of solitude. Sleeping in short increments while the boat is sailing via an autopilot was suggested by more than one author as a safety precaution. And while suggested lengths of time vary between authors, 20 minutes was the most conservative number, so I made it my goal. Even though many are superstitious about changing the name of a boat and strongly advise against doing so, I changed the name of my sailboat from Galadriel to Sobrius. Sobriety brought me to sailing, and the name Sobrius, Latin for sobriety, would forever remind me of my commitment to stay sober. The previous February 3rd marked my first year of sobriety, and I had bought for myself a one-week sailing class as a reward for my efforts. This led to an obsession with sailing that brought me to Sobrius and St. Petersburg. I reasoned that if I named my boat Sobrius, I would, be, I would further be disinclined to start drinking again. So far, this strategy has been successful. This is the story of becoming a single-hand sailor and my solo journey from St. Petersburg to my home in St. Augustine. This was my first single-hand journey, and my previous sailing experience was minimal. I had read many books on sailing, sailed on friends' boats, and sailed offshore a few times, but I had never owned a sailboat besides a dinghy that I restored and then sold after only sailing a handful of times. I had never planned a sailing journey and had never been responsible for knowing how to skipper a sailboat, but I had confidence that I could pull it off with a lot of studying, the right vessel, and some practice before embarking on the journey. Paul's books on Amazon and Kobo.com. The book Journey to the Ragged Islands is due out before Christmas. That would be his second book. But you can get his book Becoming a Sailor. That's available right now on Amazon or Kobo. Planning on bringing more readings of amazing sailing stories 
from some amazing sailors in the new year. If you have a book and you have the audio rights to it, if you'd like to read a sample chapter, send me an email at linuswilson at outlook.com. Contact me through Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and hopefully we can get you to record it. So if you're listening for the first time, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and really helps out to write a rating or review. If you'd like to hear more of the podcast and you're already through it, there are 40 plus bonus episodes available exclusively to patrons. And you can unlock those for a limited time for as little as a dollar. Plus, patrons get audiobooks, full-length audiobooks. So check that out at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. So you can hear another sample from Paul's book in the bonus episode. And I'll talk about my summer sailing plans and my preparation so far. Bonus episode should be out before the end of October 2018. Thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Podcast will return in November 2018. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.